Heavenly Father, as we come together now and peer into your word and the truths that it teaches us, may you help us to be open, open to change, open to thinking differently. open and depressing what you would have us do with our time and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, welcome one and all. Happy to be here with you today. If you don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm on the elder team here at Hall Center Church and on the preaching team. A couple things before we dive into God's word. David Fry completed his master's degree. Can we give him a fan? I know I speak for myself, and a number of folks would echo, I'm very proud of you, David. That was a lot of work, especially when you have a baby in the house. I challenge you to go ahead and try that, if you'd like. <laughs> um, and so when you do go up to David, and he's just got this blank stare, just give him a moment couple snaps, and he'll be right there with you. But he doesn't know what it's like to not be a student. And uh, so congratulations. Um, I've been away for a bit. Uh, been on vacation. My bride, Lori, and I, in a few weeks, are going to celebrate 30 years together. How do you do it, Lori, is the question. Uh, but we were thrilled to be able to get away for our longest vacation yet. And if you're not Lori's friend on Facebook, go ahead and add yourself to the throng. And um, you can see pictures and whatnot. We had an amazing time. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, as I open, have you ever done that, where you have just an amazing, amazing high, just the most wonderful time you can imagine, and you come back and just get punched in the face? It has been a rough week for me with uh, not much sleep and some stuff going on, and but God is faithful, and I love that he has me get back into his word and and deal with the stuff that we're dealing with in this Surviving the Season series. Allowing Jesus to turn difficulties into opportunities. Hmm. And so I want to do a quick review of where we're at. Before I left for vacation, if you recall, we spent a little bit of time in the Beatitudes and talked about the fact that the holidays present us with an amazing opportunity to be a blessing and that Jesus shows us what's that, what that looks like. And then David brought the next few sermons and, ooh, pressed on some buttons. David, I saw that. Hmm. Eating and drinking with broken people is a Christ-like activity rather than a burden to avoid. And I hope you saw the short that we put together that summarized that. David also talked about as Christians, God's value system should challenge and change the way that we give. And last week, 
David kind of cleared up this idea that Jesus is just another character amongst the midst of other characters. Our hope comes from Jesus as the greatest being in existence. And so that brings us to today's sermon. And today's sermon is titled, Default Position. We've got a couple passages we're going to look at at the very end in there. But Default Position. Let me ask a question. Who has a car that is a stick shift? Wow, that's a small group. 50 years ago, 75% of this room would have had their hands up. All right, how many people know how to drive one? Okay. David, as your career ends and you're preaching up here, that number's going to go to almost zero. They're, they're hiding on us. But they're not easy to drive, not as easy as the other cars on the road. It's not the easiest thing to figure out. A few years ago, Lori and I went on vacation to Newport, and I found a really great rate on a hotel that was beautiful in Newport, Rhode Island. We went to see all the mansions, and I, when I pulled in, I realized, oh, it's right downtown. They don't have any parking. The only parking they have is valet. And so I'm in my little white VW, and I pull in, and I'm like, all right, we'll take our bags. You can have the car. And he goes, um, can, can you just park it over there? I don't know how to drive a standard. <laughs> Can you believe that? You have a valet that doesn't know how to drive. Well, and that's just because there weren't many poor folks like me pulling into that uh, hotel, is what I think. But with the standard stick shift, whatever you want to call it, if things aren't in the right default position, things don't go as they should. Emergency brake needs to be down. The stick shift needs to be in the right gear. Your foot needs to be on the clutch, and maybe the brake. Well, I don't want to make too many analogies between a car and your spiritual life, but this one works. If we aren't in the proper default position, a lot of things can go wrong. And so what does being in the right default position look like? Well, it looks like holiness. It, looked like, it looks like loving God and loving others. And it's driven by what God has done for us. We have a motivation. And so the point I want to press into today with you is this one. The joy set before us at Christmas should help us return to the default position Jesus desires for us. The default position that Jesus desires for us, not the default position many times that we find ourselves in. Because of Jesus, and because of what he's done, and what we're celebrating at Christmas, Christmas Christians can walk in a joy that the world can't touch. We have been made right with God. We have had our sins forgiven. We've been given eternal life. This is the joy set before us at Christmas. None of that is possible without the gift of Jesus. And it matters, it matters to how we live. And we get pushed out of the default position that God desires for us very easily. Difficult times, difficult people, we can allow those things to get us out of the place that Jesus wants for us. 
And many times we don't even know we are in a position that's out of place. We just find ourselves there. So I want to take a look at four default positions that we often adopt that Jesus does not desire for us. And then we'll talk about what correcting these positions looks like. And so the first one, and this if you don't take anything away from today besides this one, the other three you can pretty much ignore for the size of this one and how much it affects all of them. The first position, God is disappointed in me. That is a place many of us find ourselves. So often our default position is to believe that God is disappointed and frustrated, and that he's simply tolerating us. The Bible says no. That before the foundation of the earth was laid, he was going to adopt you, make you holy and blameless in his sight. So whether we're having good days or bad days, God is at work. He hasn't abandoned you. He's not disappointed in you, no matter how difficult the season that you're in is. And so I want to point today, how amazing does that make our God? That in our hypocrisy, he is patient with us. In our inability to live out what he's called us to, the Bible uses this term, he lavishes his grace on us. And so let's look back at Ephesians, which we studied this year, and remind ourselves of chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Here it is. And the key word is underlined, I think, for you there. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so, um, I love this word lavish. It gives an idea of extravagance, plentiful, not just plentiful, but over the top. And so when the Bible's talking about forgiveness, it's saying that his grace in forgiveness is lavished, it's over the top. It's too much, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous amount. It's over the top. It's out of control. So whoever you are, man or woman, young or old, if you're in Christ and you're struggling, please hear this as we look at what we have today. God does not regret saving you. He doesn't regret it. You haven't surprised him. You cannot surprise him. God is not watching where you are now, watching how you've struggled and possibly failed this week, watching how you stumble and regretting the decision he made to pay the price in full for you. He's not. You have no sin, past present or future that has more power than the cross of Jesus. Amen? Not one. This means that your salvation wasn't just a past event, and you've heard me say it up here so many times, salvation is both now and not yet. 
Christ even now is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins, now leaving it up to you to conquer all the present and future ones. He's got them all. Look at the verse again. We have redemption. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Which means it doesn't matter how you came in here today. It means that God can rescue. It means that God can save. And it means for those of us who are in Christ, he is not disappointed in us. He's not disgusted with you. You do not disgust him. And you would say, well, Steve, you don't know what I struggle with and how awful it is. And I can tell you, whatever I would say would probably not be spot on, but I know that Jesus would say, I paid the bill in full, and what you're saying is nonsense. This is the grace he lavished on us in his forgiveness. Psalm 22 is the chapter that Jesus quoted on the cross. It begins with, why have you forsaken me? And you, and you recall that from the crucifixion. But in that chapter, verse 24, David writes, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. And so because of Christmas, we know that God delights in us. Because of Jesus, he's not disappointed in you. And this one is foundational. If your default position is that God is disappointed in you, you need to press into the truth that he has not hidden his face from you, but has heard you and delights in you. He loves you, and Christmas is when we celebrate that he loves you enough to send his son to earth into the muck and the mire, and the drama, and the sin to take, and to take away the weight of sin in your life. He's not disappointed in you. He saved you. And so if you struggle with this particular default position, maybe memorize Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. Maybe put it on your fridge. Put it on your phone background. He has lavished his grace on you. The grace that he has lavished on you makes your sin look like a joke. It doesn't mean we walk or live in it, but it means that our sin is appoints us to a Savior. Charles Stanley says this, a person can sin or rebel against God and reap God's consequences for that sin as a means of chastisement, but a person cannot disappoint God. Okay? If this is a tough one for you, if this is taking away some of the joy of Christmas for you, please press into it. The other things that, that Scripture calls us to have this one as a foundation. All right, the next default position we often find ourselves in has to do with our stuff. And this default position says that what God has given me is mine. Hmm. Well... Let's use someone in the Bible as an example. By the end of his life, King David had wealth that was beyond measure. He brought unity to Jerusalem and established Jerusalem as the greatest city in the ancient world. He'd amassed great national treasure, and his dying wish was to use some of that wealth to build a house for God, the temple. 
And so he wouldn't be the one to build it. David, uh, Solomon would. But David modeled generosity for the nation of Israel by giving massive gifts to the construction of the temple. But then David went beyond just the money the city had accumulated and gave from his own personal stores of silver and gold, apparently just for the joy of giving it. His example was so great that the leaders of Israel were compelled to give to the building of the temple also. And the Hebrew text, if you look at 1 Chronicles 29, says they gave willingly with a perfect heart. With a perfect heart. What? And so the generosity set off a sort of a chain reaction effect. And when the people of Israel saw it, they, they had like a party. They broke out in celebration of worship. And in the midst of this worship that the people were doing, seeing the giving that was going to God and to his house, David, the mightiest and wealthiest man on earth, he stood up and he prayed this prayer that I put up here for you, 1 Chronicles 29, 14. He said, who am I? And what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Do you see that there? And of your own have we given you. Estimates of what David's gift was was probably $500-$800 billion in today's dollars. Yet David held it with an open hand, and though the amount of his wealth was cuckoo, David isn't remembered for that. Instead, he's remembered as the man after God's own heart. What kept a guy at this level of prosperity and power? You can think of folks that have that kind of maybe money today. What kept him from being completely selfish and corrupt? It was probably the heart. And one solid principle, David knew that everything is God's. Here's the issue, though. We might accept the fact that everything is God's, but you wouldn't know it. <laughs> the way you live wouldn't give anyone that idea. And so if we don't find ourselves asking God for wisdom and how to best use our resources, if we meticulously count everything we have and find joy in our bank account growing, as opposed to humbly acknowledging being blessed by God, then we don't really believe it's God's. We act like it's ours and give lip service to the idea that it's God. Earlier in his life, David wrote in Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, meaning everything. The world and those who dwell therein, for he is founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's all his. The next default position, number three that we find ourselves in. My identity comes from what I do. What's your identity? Well, I'm an engineer. I'm a manager. I'm a mom. I'm a dad. I'm an elder. I'm a student. And here's what we do. We live our lives like that is what defines us. And it's easy to do because we spend so much time doing that thing. It consumes us. Sometimes, and some of you in this room, it's going to resound, sometimes we are actually obsessed with what identifies in this world to the point that it never leaves our mind. <laughs> 
And so scripture deals with that strongly. Because it's a problem. The problem is that you're dead. And that that's really your identity. Galatians 2.20. Love what a simple sentence this first part of the verse is. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. What's that mean? Well, we all kind of know what crucifixion is. You're dead. The passage continues. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This needs to be our identity. A life lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what holiness looks like when our default position is that God delights in me, that everything I have is his, and my identity is crucifixion with Jesus. And so listen to what J.I. Packer said. I don't have it up here. So just kind of focus on the words if you can. He says, the root of holiness The root of holiness is co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Jesus Christ. We need to realize and remember that the believer's holiness is a matter of learning to be in action what he already is in the heart. In other words, it is a matter of living out the life and expressing the disposition and instinct that is the new nature that God wrought in him by creating him anew in Christ. And every once in a while, Packer uses some big words and whatnot. I don't usually have to summarize what he's saying, but what he's saying is holiness is being who you are. Who you are in Christ. Not who you think you are or the world thinks you are, but who you are in Christ. You are a new creation crucified with Christ, and you no longer live. Jesus Christ lives in you. Your identity is who you are, not what you do. It might be a good season to press into that, to let go a little bit of how hard you understand how you're defined by what you do. And we'll go into the last default position that we find it easy to slide into. People need to be my friends. The world we are in has taken friendship and relationships and made them all about how cool you are and how compatible you are and what you can do for me. And we fall into that default position. People need to like me. People need to be my friends. And so I want to take a few minutes and take a look at biblical friendship based on what Jesus has done. In John 15, 15, Jesus said this, no longer do I call you servants 
or the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. And then he went and died for us. And so that is what friendship looked like to Jesus. I call you friends, and he goes to the cross. Giving himself for others. Not trying to get them to do something for him. I don't call you servants anymore. But him giving himself up for them. And so let's talk about this for a minute. Biblical friendship exists when two or more people put together by a common faith in what Jesus has done for them and what we're celebrating at Christmas, pursue him intentionally. Biblical friendship is not an end in itself. Its primary purpose is to bring glory to Christ. Friendship's primary purpose is to bring glory to Christ. Because he has brought us into friendship with the Father. This is crucial for the work of the gospel on the earth. And it's an absolutely essential element of what God created us for. He created us for a relationship. But he didn't create us for a relationship where we're constantly we're pointing this way. Hobbies and interests change. Stages and seasons of life shift. Friendship has to be grounded in something far more than those things. Any friendship must therefore begin with our friendship in Christ. Augustine said this in a prayer. He's an oldie. He said, there can be no true friendship unless those who cling to each other are welded together by you in that love which is spread throughout our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us. Biblical friendship must be centered on Christ and his sacrificial death on the cross. A friendship built on anything less, whether it's where you live or being followed on social media or how compatible you are or liking the same things, cannot bear the same fruit, can't last as long, it can't survive the same tests, and it can't deliver the same satisfaction. And so what I want to press on with you and see today, and hopefully you walk away with an understanding of, true friendship requires sacrifice. Just a couple verses before the one that I've got up here, Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. It's quoted so often, it might even lose its meaning for you, but Jesus is saying, this is what love looks like. This is what friendship looks like. Friendship looks like a giving up of yourself for the other, not seeing what the other can do for you. And man, guys, don't we live in a world where everything around us needs to serve us, including our friends. We look to them for what they can give to us. And that is completely the wrong default position. The complete wrong default position. What can you do for me when we use Jesus as our model There's no place for that. 
And this all sounds great theoretically, right? But then a couple verses after the verse up here, Jesus commands, he doesn't suggest in chapter 15, verse 17, he says, just love one another. He commands it. And so the connection that Jesus makes, and if you want to go through John 15 and see all the beauty that Jesus is teaching there and showing us, but the connection's clear. If the greatest love ever was was demonstrated by Jesus through his death on our behalf, then clearly the love we are supposed to display to each other has to be characterized by self-sacrifice. It is not about what others can do for us. But here's the rub. And everybody here can handle this one. We are creatures of comfort and ease and don't like relationships that demand much from us. We might easily give someone some money or not yell at somebody for cutting in front of us, but listening to another believer's burden or heartache, ah, I don't really want to get involved. Serving a friend here in a season of need, sorry, I'm just too pressed for time. I've got too much going on. I'm identified by these things. But biblical love has a focus on serving. Mark 10.45 Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. In Hawaii, there are a lot of tattoo parlors. And one day I'm going to come in here and I'm going to show you on my ankle 10.45. And you're going to say, what? And all the air will be sucked out of the room. But this verse is that meaningful. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so where should we be? By the way, if you get a tattoo in Hawaii, you can't go in the water for a week, so it didn't happen. Next trip, we'll see. Sorry. Put this one to memory, please, Mark 10.45. So biblical friendships will not thrive via text message, via likes, via Instagram DMs. Yeah, none of you knew I was that hip, did you? I am. To flourish, friendships require self-sacrificial love based on what Jesus has done for us. So people don't need to be your friends. You need to be a friend to those around you in a sacrificial way. And that will give glory to God. It will demonstrate your love for Jesus and it will transform the world around you. And you'll have more friends than you know what to do with. Are you lonely? Press into this truth. Find out how Jesus wants you to reach out to others. Pray for wisdom to do it and then step out in faith towards others. And in today's world, it is, it is harder than it ever has been. We are so isolated. Okay. I want to review, and how I want to review is I want to review, I want to look at these default positions, and I want to correct them. And I want to just quickly talk about them and make sure in your head you know where we've gone today. The first corrected position, God delights in me. Can you tell yourself that? 
We slip into the default position of God is disappointed in me so easily, mostly because we get disappointed in ourselves or others get disappointed in us. If you are here today and you feel like God is frowning over you today, please know the Bible teaches the complete opposite. Packer says it this way. I've got his quote for this up here. God himself rejoices over us. And our joy in Jesus becomes a constituent part of God's joy in us. I don't have it up here, but listen to Zephaniah 3.17. Listen. Close your eyes and listen if you can. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. What a great verse. What a great verse. And so this Christmas, remember what Christ accomplished for you. God delights in you because of what Jesus accomplished when he came to earth. Next corrected position. Everything I have is his. Contrast this with what we were looking at. What God has given me is mine. No. Everything I have is his. It's all his. All of it. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. He made you. He gave you abilities. What you wind up owning as a result is his. And what you own is designed to be used for God's glory, for his kingdom. John Piper says that the possession of money in this world is a test run for eternity. There's a lot in that. And so I would challenge you this Christmas to hold on to things loosely. Remember that everything you have is his and is to be used for his glory. Think about what sending Jesus to die costs God when you feel tempted to hold on to your stuff tightly. Think about that. Third corrected position, I have no identity that matters outside of Christ. As opposed to our identity being wrapped up in what we do, I have no identity that matters outside of Christ. And no one says it better than John in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 1. He says, see, and, and you can hear John kind of say, just kind of, kind of, do you get this? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are children of the living God because of what Jesus accomplished for us. Christmas has extra meaning when we understand that Jesus accomplished this for us. Our identity, we are children of God. And John says, and that's what we are. Mm. Last one. The corrected position, not people need to be my friend. I am called to be a friend to others, especially other believers. 
with what we've said about friendship earlier, it might have brought some weight to your heart. You might be saying, I don't, how do I choose the right friends? How do I know if I get the right one? And C.S. Lewis, I found this quote from him about this, and I didn't put it up. It's too long, but listen to this. This is how C.S. Lewis, who just puts things so amazing, he says, we think we've chose our own friends, but for the Christian, they are, strictly speaking, no chances. A secret master of ceremonies is always at work. Christ, who said to the disciples, you have not chosen me, I have chosen you, can also say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. At the Feast of Friendship, Lewis continues, it is God who has spread the board, and it is God who has chosen the guests. It is he who sometimes does and always should preside. I love how C.S. Lewis put, put this. He says, let us not reckon without our host. God knows what he's doing. Tim Keller, talking about friendship, says this. He says, make him, make Jesus the friend your heart desires, and you will have all the friends your heart needs. So this Christmas, be a friend, because Jesus, the light of the world, has called you friend. By way of quick, quick review, God is disappointed in me. No. What God has given me is mine. No. My identity comes from what I do. No. People need to be my friends. No. God delights in me. Everything I have is His. I have no identity that matters outside of Christ. I am called to be a friend to others. And so our main point today, the joy set before us at Christmas should help us return to the default position Jesus desires for us. And how does this happen? Hebrews 12, 2. Here's how it happens. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, looking to Jesus. And so hopefully during this holiday season, during Christmas, and as we come together, and as we continue to look into God's word, we find ourselves doing that. We find ourselves looking to Jesus and Asking him to change those places where the default position is totally wrong. And what, is, what does it look like in practice? Well, what does it actually look like? Well, James, in his very direct and simple way, tells us this in James 1.27. He says, you want to see what it looks like. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see that, and if that turns into a should for you, a should, go back. James is calling us to this because of what Jesus has done for us. In James' day, orphans and widows were the most needy in the community just the, the, at the very bottom 
And so this Christmas, what does that look like for you? Look to those in need around you. Look for opportunities to give. There's a Christmas tree. It's almost bare out there. Grab a couple of whatever's left on there and then get something else. Go over the top. Be lavish. Not because you should, but because God has lavished His grace of forgiveness on you. Look for opportunities to show hospitality. Look for opportunities to develop friendships. Pray and ask God for opportunities to serve him by serving others. Do you have a big family that gathers and you could include someone who has no one? Go for it. Press into what God would have you do for others. All based on these facts. All of this is based on these facts. God delights in me. Everything I have is his. I have no identity that matters outside of Christ, and I am called to be a friend to others. And so, again, the point. The joy set before us at Christmas should help us return to the default position that Jesus desires for us. We're going to close with a song, and the singers and musicians can go ahead and come up. We're going to close with Prepare Him Room. Great closing. The song says, oh, our hearts as busy as Bethlehem. Hear him knock. Don't say there's no room in the inn. Through the cradle, the cross, and the grave. See the love of God displayed. Now he's risen and he reigns. Praise the name above all names. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and we confess that it is so easy for us to slide into a new default position that says, yeah, you're just not very happy with us today. Or even that we might disgust you. Lord, help us. As we've talked about changing our default position, the Bible uses a term called repentance. It talks about changing. Changing how we think and changing how we act. In this season, as we focus on the gift of your Son to each and every one of us, may we find a way to change those default positions in our lives that we know are wrong. Help us to look at what we have as yours. Help us to find our identity in the identity of your Son who loved us and gave himself up for us. Help us to be friends. Help us not to be people who just need people to be our friends. Help us to be a friend to those, and especially to those in need. May we do this together. May we do it as a body. May we celebrate Christmas together, knowing that what you want from us is is a default position that is glorifying you because of what's been given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.